three, two, one. History is really, really important, but geography is another tool that you have to, at your disposal to be able to show things are this way in town X and look how differently they play out in town Y with a different set of policy measures in place. It reminds us of our agency, that things aren't inevitably this way, that with a different set of choices, we can reach a different set of outcomes. Mona Shalabi is a data journalist, and not just a traditional data journalist. Her work is typically presented through brilliant illustrations that many of us, including myself, have shared on Instagram. She makes data cool and accessible, easier for people like me to understand. Most recently, she is the host of a podcast called Am I Normal? She makes this podcast with the TED Audio Collective. Yes, that TED. And topics include, when will I get over my breakup? How many friends do I need? They even made an episode on what she calls the spermageddon, talking about fertility. She's a storyteller and her language is data. Number-focused data is something I've struggled with understanding and that's why I'm very curious about today's storytelling session. Welcome to this episode of Podcast Noor with Mona Shalabi. Mona Shalabi. Oh, wow. You went with the authentic pronunciation of the last name. Got yeah. you. You, you yeah. know you're not the first Shalabi I've met. Was the other one related to the other ones, you know? Yeah, yes. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not related to those ones, yeah. You know, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because, yeah, like the second you go into journalism as an Arab with the last name Chalabi, people are like, and I used to live in Jordan as well. So people are like, Ahmed Chalabi stole money from Jordan. We're going to get so sidetracked at multiple times. Oh, anyway, I'm not related. well, no, the Chalabi, see, I'm even, I'm like so much more local. I'm talking about like in the DMV area, there's a lot of Chalabis and I know, like, we just know. Oh, really? Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. there's like this Ahmed no, Chalabi. I don't know the drama. Oh, there's drama. There's drama. And it's a different clan. Okay. But anyway, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> um, to kick this off on this rainy New York day, is it raining in London? Always. Always. Oh, okay. Yeah. I felt like that was a safe bet. So we're doing the rainy, cuddly conversation today. And of course, we want to start out with doing a, a heart check-in. How is your heart doing today? I knew you was going to ask this. Do you know what? (laughs) I don't, I don't know how my heart is doing. And I think that this happens to me a lot when I'm tired. I don't necessarily know how I'm feeling. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it foggy? So that you can't like really isolate what the feeling is or is it overwhelm? It's foggy. I just don't really know. It's just like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm moving through the world. I'm not, I'm not Mm. feeling things. Yeah. Probably not good. Probably not good. Um, I don't see. We don't do the good thing. We don't do this is okay, not good. Okay. This is bad. This is it's just like that's the part of the human life experience that you're having right now. It's the one where you're moving through and you sometimes I think that we don't know what our feelings are until after we have gone through them and we have to begin to start processing them. And I process things through a very emotional lens. Like I'm a feelings person. You are one of the most creative people that I know, and also a 
data person. So do you like, when you think of feelings, do you see numbers? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I kind of do in some ways. Or I'm like also looking for correlations, which I guess is what part of what happens in therapy, right? It's like trying to figure out when thing X elicits feeling Y. And so I think sometimes I'm trying to understand what is giving rise to my feelings by looking for those correlations, you know? So are you always looking for patterns to find answers? Like, do you need... Do you need a period at the end of an answer? Can it be open-ended? It can be open-ended. Like, I think that data is really, really flawed. And I think that life is messy. And I think that this is just like a set of guiding principles. But I am always looking for patterns. Always, always, always. Both like to understand myself better and understand the people around me. And yeah, it makes me feel safer. Mm. It makes me feel safer. I love that because... We, I, I guess we all have different tools in our toolbox that we use to make ourselves feel safer or in what you like to call it, normal, quote, normal. You have an amazing podcast with the TED Audio Collective called Am I Normal? And you bring these like life experiences and couple it with how you look at it through the lens of data. And I love it so much because I don't look at things through the lens of data and numbers. In fact, it's like the th- it's the... The thing I focus on the least, even in my own Mm -hmm. reporting, because my reporting is so like human centric. I need to see somebody say it from their mouths for me to Mm. find the story within it. And I think that maybe I've had I have like a distrust towards data and numbers typically because I'm like, well, where are these numbers coming from? Who is who is it coming from? So how did you learn to build trust with numbers or did you have to did you find your own way like your own Mm -hmm. checklist of this is how I will these are the things that need to be in place for me to take the take use this information in a story I think that's exactly it it's like my distrust has never gone away and I think that distrust is actually a great starting point for engaging with numbers but I think that I now I, I, exactly what you said, right? I think I have this set of questions that I can go in with that make me feel equipped to understand when to use data and when not to use it. And even when I'm using it, I don't want to lose sight of that human-centered approach that you're, that you're describing. It's like the data is one part of the storytelling and it's not the whole part. And even when I'm using that data, I don't think any data set is perfectly accurate. Even data sets about the natural sciences, let alone social sciences. So what I'm also trying to do is to is to capture all of the flaws in the data and to use that as part of the reporting, right? Like, you know, we don't we don't even yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Anyway, no, I'm gonna get into the weeds all of a sudden. Yeah. Wait, but I want to know where you're going. Well, I mean, like, to me, it's not surprising. Like it's so interesting to me which groups describe themselves as like not having a good relationship with data or being distrustful of it right yeah, and very yeah, often yeah. it's the people who are not represented very well in society and frankly <laughs> not represented in data sets like nor how often have you had to fill out a form and notice that you are the other category the like, other category thinking- every time so i'm like yeah oh, and i actually now that you say that i actually use 
this lack of data in my conversation. Like mm. I was just on this, um, this like leadership retreat. It was all of these really amazing women. And um, someone brought up that their Iranian friend couldn't get this grant that they really, really wanted. And the reason was because they were considered white, even though they were Iranian and they don't identify as white. And yeah. that, I mean, and we know this with people who are of like out of descent or, or whatever, like there's so many, I don't want to get in the weeds of the terminology, but you know what I mean. And how like there's such a severe lack of representation, like the yeah. data around how many Arab Americans there are in the United States has to be, in, I mean, is incredibly deeply flawed because on the U.S. census, we have to technically check off white. And so most people probably do because in parentheses, it says Middle East and North Africa next to white. But also we don't identify ourselves as such. And so and and that's what we grew up with. Like we I we were checking other since we were children. So how are yeah. we ever supposed? So I'm like, you guys, you don't even have the right information. And it, and it goes two ways, right? Like when you are continually confronted with a form where you have to check this box other, it then weirdly starts to shape your identity where you feel like another because that's mm. what you've had to repeatedly check. The other thing to say about that, and I love the example that you're giving about Arab identities. It's something that I mentioned in an upcoming episode of the podcast, which Woo-hoo. literally talks about the US census, as you say, um, because that was also done for... Um, I think it's fair to assume that the willful neglect of adding the category other has some political motivations, right? So it artificially inflates the size of the white population, which benefits, like, yeah, which benefits districting, which benefits the narrative about what percentage of Americans are white. Like, Arabs are a very, very small minority, but it's still enough to, like, shift the dial a little bit in in terms of the overall white percentage in the US, right? So, of course, that's going to affect my relationship with data. If every single chart that I'm looking at, every single representation of America... I'm just not on there, right? Like I'm literally looking at this thing and I'm thinking, wow, am I am I am I falling into the white category or the Asian? Like I'm none of those things. We like I'm not white. I'm not white. It's ludicrous. Um but again, it's like I actually think that some of the most beautiful data journalism I've seen comes out of a gap in the data. So it's like starting with a question of like why don't we know how many Arabs there are in America? And actually, even the story of how do you come up with a with an estimate is super interesting. Like to me, I know this is going to sound so dry, but like a methodology is just a really interesting story. It's like starting with a with a with a question and then talking about the steps that you undergo to find an answer. It's a story. It has a beginning, middle, and end. It's really compelling. I really love what you are saying because that's in a, in a different language that is my approach to journalism as well is like asking a question that I haven't figured out found an answer to that suffices and it's like you're finding holes in the story so that you can make the story or you're just finding space to just write a completely different story one that needs to be updated or a new one or one with new perspective and it's interesting because with numbers you're all you're telling typically bigger 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 stories but what you've been doing and what you've been doing with your storytelling is I can see how like the root is so personal 
and then you make it so global. And I love that. That's something that I notice that I do too. And, and, and it's something that you like, you can be intentional about the work that you're doing. And when you're so intentional about it, it naturally becomes so big. And so it tells like so many more stories because you're following something. And one of the really personal ways that numbers impact all of our lives, especially now, is through finance and through money. And I've always found it fascinating and infuriating that it's more important for us to learn trigonometry in school than money management or how to do our taxes or how to financial plan. What in your education Mm. around numbers and data, did you ever find gaps in financial literacy being taught? Yeah, it was the exact same experience over here. I was educated mostly in the UK and there was absolutely nothing about financial management. And I think that it's hard. I was about to say, I think that sometimes that replicates existing inequalities, right? Where like, if you're very wealthy, your dad can just be like, hey, use my account on the first year that you file your taxes. And then you you can like skip that that step. And then again, wealthier people get to manage money better than those who don't have resources. However, I'm about to stop myself from even saying that because I do think there's like this recurring myth that people who are poor or who don't have access to resources are bad at managing money. And I actually think that the opposite is true. People Mm. who don't have money are meticulous about balancing budgets. Like I couldn't tell you down to the penny how much is in my bank account right now I have a very very good idea but not down to the penny but I remember that when my balance was like less than $200 I knew down to the penny you know like yep yep. you're better at managing money when you have less of it because you need to um so I just want to put that in there because I feel like it kind of stigmatizes a little bit poor people this idea that they they're not managing their money correctly when actually they're doing fantastically I would say by and large yeah Mm. And now with the, like, we've just been obviously hit with the last couple of years of deep uncertainty and, and loss and abundance and perspective. And there's so many, it seems like the, that the world is full of the outliers that we constantly just kept kicking out of the, the, the typical approach to data and numbers. And you mentioned use the term wealthy and I think that we've all had to really think about what that even means yeah when life comes at us and we're like well do we have the resources to be able to get through this or are we going to have to completely pivot our lives mm-hmm. and um you have this incredible piece that you wrote in the guardian a few years ago about money dysmorphia mm-hmm. and the concept of it, which I will let you speak to, is something I think is more relevant today, at least for me, when I was rereading the piece and just thinking about how um, there's a lot more emotion attached to the way that we use money or manage money or talk about money than we think. And yeah. 
because it's something that we don't, we aren't constantly talking about with our friends or with our loved ones or with, um, it. oftentimes the anxiety around money is something we carry alone. We don't even realize the emotional and mental impact of where we're, we're at with it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the thing that you're describing is so relevant to the thing that we were saying at the start of this conversation, which is the thing you're describing is the way that numbers are not cold and abstract and objective, right? Like $100 for one person means something very, very different to someone else. Mm. And equally, the thing that you're describing about the pandemic is that $100 to you now might not feel the same as it did before the pandemic, right? Because in a context of great uncertainty, the value of money, I think, changes. So the 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 concept that I describe of money dysmorphia is a feeling of, it's like any form of dysmorphia, right? There's a difference between perception and reality. So my reality is that I'm actually financially quite stable. Emotionally and mentally, I'm not there yet. And so I feel like I don't have resources, even though I do. And I think that it would make sense that COVID has heightened that feeling for a lot of people because Mm -hmm. my feelings of financial insecurity come, they are rooted in this idea of uncertainty that anything could happen and how much money will I need to be able to support myself when this anything happens. So it's almost like I lie to myself and say that I have less money in my bank account than I do in order to be fiscally responsible and in order to be prepared for this any any surreal event and you don't get more surreal and more unexpected than this global pandemic right like our whole notion of the improbable has shifted and so again how much money do you need to be able to handle all of life's potential eventualities i just think it creates this this inherent kind of insecurity in every aspect of our lives and that probably i would assume includes the financial aspect of our lives as well can you say more mm. about, I'm so curious. I know I'm not supposed to be the person asking the questions. No, but I'm please. curious about how your relationship with money has changed at, at any point really, but particularly since the start of the pandemic. Oh my gosh. Um, I had the biggest, like, I had so much to process and to move through um, mm. because I had so much anxiety. Right now where I'm at with the relationship is um, letting go of control being mindful of it but not like using not letting money or lack of money be what controls like what I do like I Mm. my where I when I know that I need to be checked is when I'm considering making a decision for the money and not for the work and Mm. I feel lucky that I have like enough that I have a team that like even when we could have used I remember I there's like this one specific opportunity that like didn't go against my values or anything it would have been fun it would have been whatever and it was good money and it was during the pandemic it was when we were in our apartment in Brooklyn and I remember where I was standing and I I said to Adam like right now like this is like not this is not what this is not the type of work that I want to be doing and so I think it's important for us to say no even though it would have been really helpful And then the next day, so I said no. And then I remember thinking like, shit, did I make the right decision? And then the next day I got an opportunity, the opportunity that literally was like 
saved us was this much bigger, much more aligned, had me on as a journal. And I got to do like the impact work that I needed to. And I Mm. will never forget that because I know that that opportunity like made its way through the door because I said no to the other one. Mm. And maybe not. Like maybe statistically that's not what happened. It would have happened anyway. But like that was a story that I wrote for myself so that I could, I, I knew to commit to this like way of thinking, which is saying no, like saying no to things that don't feel right in the moment are, is more important than saying yes when just because you really need the money, but like to your discretion and there's a way to do that and still be open. And I think that that's kind of where I'm at. It's so interesting, everything you're saying about like the collective versus the individual, because so the story that you that you that you described about, you know, buying this place and then the price rockets up like immediately afterwards. Right. There's two ways you could view that. It could be like, so now we're all good. We're so lucky. blah blah. But it's funny, like it actually sounds like it comes from such a place of deep humility and a lack of individualism that that actually kind of wasn't comforting because you so you saw so clearly that you could have been on the other side of that that it wasn't through some geniusness of your own you could have been the person who waited an extra month and then was blocked out of the system and i think that's what's hard is that even when things can work in your favor sometimes you're still left with the feeling of like but it could have been different you know mm i mean yeah but that like well, thank you. And also, I think, I mean, and we obviously both like have practiced a similar faith or the same faith. And we ha- there's this like deeply underlying notion that we are not the ultimate planner. Like yeah. we don't plan step by step everything that's happening in our lives. And so there has to be like this deep trust that you put into something that is bigger than yourself to know why you were put in this position and I think that like we call our land campus and we just had our first Mm -hmm. like campus homecoming and um since we've gotten the land it has been a place where dozens of people have come and just like spent time on the land and done their creative thing and when we made the decision it was literally because oh maybe our responsibility is to gather people and create a place for them to feel safe and open and creative and like let them pass through. And I remember even with this was last weekend, like even with the campus homecoming, um, Adam and I were talking about the intention and I was having a lot of anxiety because it was my first time gathering. It was like about 30 people. It was my first time gathering that many people at my home. I'd never done that before. And even though our families like gather people all the time, they make it seem so easy. And I was having all this anxiety about things being perfect. And then I just, I, anytime I have a lot of anxiety around something like that, I think, well, what is your intention? Mm. And so when I thought about it, I like closed my eyes and I meditated and I was like, what can I let go? I can let go of like the control around, like certain things like didn't, whatever, life happens and things fell through or whatever it was. And I was like, "Mm, my intention is to just be a guide here that's like able to help provide this space, but it's the land that invited these people here. Like they're going to have their own experiences here and it's not for me to try to control or make perfect, but we can just facilitate. Mm. Because it's this, um, 
it's I mean it's kind of I mean that goes into the whole notion of like does anybody ever actually own land it makes me wonder if anybody ever owns anything really yeah oh if you do if you do it's inherently temporary like it is yeah it's and also like there's maybe there's comfort in that too maybe there's comfort in the fact that like that it is yeah temporary I mean I don't know from with a numbers brain with a numbers oriented brain what like what role does control play in how you think mm-hmm. like what what how often are you having to let go of control when you're looking at controlled data I think in general I'm someone who does try to like as much as possible control stuff around me which is probably not healthy but I also don't really think that can be done with data. So you described, like, when you were saying this idea about whether to stay in York or whether to go, you said that, like, you didn't quite resonate with the two groups that were depicted in the data set, right? And I think that's really normal. And that's a lot of people, you know, the data set that was, like, described in the podcast. And I think that's really normal. And it's a lot of people's experience. Do you know, this is going to sound like a really, really weird analogy, but I always think of data as, like, horoscopes. And I think the people who are into horoscopes aren't people who are typically like super into control. It's like, it's like a conversation starter, right? So for example, me and you were talking in very vague abstract terms about money and like, you know, being wealthy, feeling abundant, not feeling abundant, not feeling wealthy. And all of this is quite intangible. But somehow if I, if we were to actually start talking around numbers and like what is the median income in the US and how both of us fit in relationship to that number, all of a sudden the conversation becomes more concrete. And I actually am like, I mean, I feel bad saying this. I'm quite incredulous about horoscopes. I know a lot of people feel really, really strongly about them. But I do think they're a beautiful way to start a conversation when you're sitting at a dinner table with someone and you ask someone what their sign is. It's a way of... It's finding a language for talking about, are you stubborn? Are you loving? Are you, you know, it just starts this whole thing that feels so much more tangible than just speaking in the abstract. So yeah. What about, what about horoscopes? I would love to listen to an Am I Normal episode on you talking about horoscopes. What about horoscopes? Are you. Distrustful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Actually, it's really funny. The thing that makes me uncomfortable about horoscopes is the exact same thing that makes me feel concerned about some of the work that I do. So I don't tell people my horoscope because I worry that if people find out, I don't even know what the different traits are, but let's say if people find out I'm a Taurus, they'll like immediately be like, see, that's why you're like that. And they'll they'll gravitate towards the traits of a Taurus and see that in me. And to be perceived that way might affect my behavior. Equally, the thing that worries me a little bit about data journalism is this idea of creating self-fulfilling prophecies that you constantly say, these are the groups that data shows do X, Y, and Z, and that 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 representation simply reinforces behaviour. So like, okay, in France, as I'm sure you know, France has a very, very problematic, violent, um, terrible history with Arab people, right? And and Muslims in particular. And the French government does not collect any data on religion. It's literally in the constitution. It's part of laicite. Like we don't collect this data. And what that means is that there is no data set in France that can show you consistently 
the systematic prejudice that French Muslims experience because it's not documented, right? We don't, we, we can't say because the numbers don't exist. However, I've had really interesting conversations with French friends. I lived, I lived in France for a while with French friends who are super lefty, who we agree on all of these different things, who push back at me and say, what does it do to a young French Muslim Arab boy to look at like, to be like 12 years old and look at graduation rate data and be told, you know what, probably your life is going to be shit. Probably, I mean, I mean shit, like, I don't really mean that. You know what I mean? Like, probably the odds are stacked against you. Probably you might not graduate. Probably you're never, ever, ever going to make it to CEO. What does that do to someone's, for some people it's going to drive them and make them push, push them further. And for others, it's going to have a profound effect on your psychology to understand the ways in which the odds are stacked against you. So do you see what I mean about that parallel between being told you're a Taurus, you're going to behave like this, and you're an Arab, you've got a 95% chance of X happening to you. There's a really interesting parallel there. Yeah. That's a really, I love that. That's a really good, interesting point. But, and the, hit me the, with the but. There's no but. I don't do but, I do and. <laughs> and... Maybe something that's important is also how we approach the storytelling around it. Absolutely. So if we talk about like deficit framing versus asset framing, you could gather like the data will always be important. I think that for Mm -hmm. documenting history and for present like when it comes to policy change, you have to present data. I mean, it's the hardest thing to change. And so we need statistical proof or studies. I and yeah. Maybe it's the approach to the story. So instead of saying like a young Arab boy in France has this percent chance of graduating, then we write the data to hold whoever needs to be held accountable and say, you know, there's this percent chance that... No, no, you're there, you're there. But like there's this percent chance that of... I don't know, something that's more... Of being admitted to a great school. Oh, I was going to say, oh, okay, we weren't thinking in the same way. I shouldn't have cut you off then. It's interesting because you were saying asset versus deficit. And in my mind, I was thinking about outcomes versus structures. So there's the data set that shows the Arab kids' likelihood of becoming CEO. And then there's the data set that shows, like, if you control for academic success, like, take all of these kids who are all getting the same grades, what are the chances of them getting into the best universities? And there... Your story isn't about, it's not quite, it is still about who wins and loses, but it's about laying bare the structural forces that result in these negative outcomes, which is super important because otherwise, like, eugenics is well and alive. Like, there are plenty of people who are going to look at those differences in outcomes and just believe, well, like, Arabs aren't as good. So that's why it's so important to to focus on the structures that give rise to those different outcomes. Mm. So how do you reckon with that when you're doing, because a lot of Mm. the data that you put together is rooted in social justice. You are presenting through your imagery and your numbers, the things that we are missing to be able to put pieces together in a story. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about, and and give us an example of some, of a a data point that you put together, research that Mm. you put together recently that change the way that you think about the issue, but also you had to change your approach and how you told that story. Mm. 
So this idea of like data potentially being uplifting and not feeling like um, a fait accompli. I don't think I've ever said that out loud. Um, you know, just like this inevitable um, result. There are a couple of ways that data is really well suited to to challenging uh, that notion. So you could look at historical patterns, right? So you could be able to point to the way, the fact that things haven't always been this way. Uh, I'm going to give an example. I My parents are both born in Iraq. Um, I used to work on uh, Iraqi migration issues. Right now, illiteracy in Iraq is incredibly high. It is really, really important to show historical data to show it used to be well over 90%. In fact, they used to hold literacy conferences in Iraq for worldwide for people to go to understand how you can get literacy rates to be that incredibly high because Iraq was like the most literate country, definitely in the region, maybe in the world, who knows? Like that is really important to show, yeah, like things didn't always have to be this way. So history is really, really important, but geography is another tool that you have at your disposal to be able to show like things are this way in town X and look how differently they play out in town Y with a different set of policy measures in place. And again, that gives the impression of like, it reminds us of our agency, that things aren't inevitably this way, that with a different set of choices, we can reach a different set of outcomes. Even another episode was about fertility, right? So it's this yeah. notion that you know, women have got this this really, really fixed biological clock and men can just keep on chugging out the sperm forever. And in order to not feel like, oh my God, like this is just like this terrible thing on which, like in order for the data to not feel like it is restrictive, it's important to critique the way that those data sets are created. So we just have more data on female fertility because scientists haven't spent as much time focusing on the role of sperm. And that has given rise to cultural beliefs that sperm is just infinite and has no expiry date, which is not true. So does the lack of data drive a lot of the stories that are being told or do cultural norms and stories drive the data that is um, being researched? Because even most recently, one of our team members who is on this podcast right now um, shared with us something that she's working on around um, like vaccine data mm -hmm. and data of like how the vaccine has impacted certain women. And of course um, there have already been, there's already been research and conversations around how the vaccine has changed a lot of our periods, but, um, but not enough conversation around the lack of representation of women in medical research in general because yes. of all of the outliers involving our bodies yeah. and how our bodies yeah. are more complicated and so um but are our bodies more complicated is that true or is it just like the way that science no that i'm saying that's like what of, they said yeah yeah right. yeah so it's both. To answer your question, it's like the culture affects the way that we create the data sets and the way that we create and analyze the data sets then goes back and affects culture. So to give another example, we have so little data and research and understanding of uh, non-binary people that isn't collected in data sets. Pretty much any data set is just man, woman. And then mm -hmm. in turn, like 
that isn't really reflected in culture and then there isn't the push to change the data set. Like it's all, it's all like a toxic cycle. Cause like the data very often reflects existing systems of power. It can challenge those systems of power. But again, the things that we create data around are the things that figures of authority have deemed it worthy to collect data on. Cause like, let's not forget data is really expensive. Like it costs so much money to create these large national data sets. And so choices go in about which questions are we gonna ask and which ones are we not gonna put on the table. Mm. And then that How again you... shapes culture. So like, sorry, just one last example, like on Arabs, right? I was speaking to um, an Arab filmmaker for the for the episode on categories. Um, they're British Iraqi, which was really, really exciting. And they're gender non-conforming. And they were talking about how, because we don't know how many Arabs there are in America, it can be hard to sell those TV shows to executives because they're like, well, what's the size of this audience? And then the material isn't made. And then there's not the same push to create the data set to find out how many Arabs there are. Like it's, it's a vicious cycle. Hi there. If you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash nor. It's usually personal writings and as I build a community on there, hopefully more. Your support is how we build. I also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things I'm benefiting from and enjoying that week. Anything from what I'm reading, watching, listening, buying, and more. Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com slash newsletter. Now back to the story. How do you approach, like in your dream scenario, Yeah. walk us through how you would approach collecting data. And, and mm. even if it's like, I want to know a topic that you'd want to collect data on. Great or, or I can, yeah, I, I do want to know that. And I can give, I can present the example of something that we're working on, which is around um, Muslim media representation in news, film, television, all of the above and how those stories have been told mm -hmm. and how people. So right now we're investigating what we're calling the triangulation between politics, pop culture and popular opinion um, involving Muslims in the media and, and, the, and their stories. And there is not a lot of data on this at all. There's some studies on Muslims in film and film representation. Um, mm. Like what would be your process in approaching that? Mm. Or another issue? No, no, I think it's a really, really good example. So my very, very first step of the process is to make sure that the people who we are trying to gather data about are front and center in the design of that research. So mm. like, I don't want to have a room full of non-Muslims deciding what should be on, like what data we should be collecting here, right? So um, on on the example that you just gave, it's kind of like, once you have all of these people in the, in the room together who are going to be represented in the data set, what are, you know how when you open up a data set, there's like the rows and the columns. It's kind of like, what are our yeah. rows and our columns is the question. So like, do you, are you particularly interested in like, um, differentiating between depictions of Muslim men and Muslim women? Let's make sure that we're collecting data on those things. Are you interested in depictions of like, hijabis versus non-hijabis um i mean yeah 
It's just funny, even as I'm describing it, it's so funny how easily binaries get replicated in data sets, yeah. right? Like even this idea of like, yeah, just uh, men, women, hijabis, non-hijabis. Um, but you can move past that, right? By in terms of like, again, the way that the data set is collected. So it's so funny, even as I'm describing this, each of these choices involves extra cost. So you can have the bluntness of saying, under 18 versus over 18. There's like a really, really blunt kind of measure. Or you could create a data set where every single character who is portrayed on film, you record the age that the actor was when they performed that role. That's gonna give you a way, way more nuanced data set, but it's also gonna take so much more time to collect in, you know, in really, really material ways. Um, I would be interesting. You also have to, for every data set, kind of decide on what are your constraints. Are we only talking about North American media? Which time period are we talking about? Are we going from like the, from, I mean, 2001 is a naturally interesting starting point to uh, begin a data set like this. Or are we actually interested in co comparing and contrasting pre 9-11 depictions to post 9-11? Like, mm -hmm. it's all about like figuring out, I guess, what your, constraints are which is why i think that data journalism is inherently a super creative process like any creative will tell you you start with like your constraints like i'm going to do a painting my constraints are either going to be like the dimensions of the canvas or the paint colors that i'm going to use like that's what makes your work better is by limiting the things that you're working with and then being creative within that set of limitations mm. Why do you think there's a misconception between creativity and data? Because you, because that representation is something I see in your work. Mm. And I think that your work is not very traditional. I think it's because most data has been gathered by and for people who are in power, typically white men. And that those aren't the people that are necessarily associated with the idea of creativity. So it makes sense that data would then be assumed to be inherently an uncreative endeavor. And how do we make data more accessible in our everyday lives? Like how can we start mm. incorporating it in a way where, because I mean, most things that we talk about are vague and abstract because yeah. we're not all sitting, we're not all doing that research. I mean, a lot of people's research is, is six to Instagram information posts and Twitter threads. Mm. And the idea of the like, data, even just the term feels overwhelming. Mm. I wonder if the pandemic has changed that. I don't think it's made the data feel any less overwhelming, but I wonder if it's changed people's assumption about how necessary it is to understand it, right? Like if you're making the choice between which vaccine to choose, let alone like whether or not to get the vaccine, but which vaccine to choose, people were studying, like people were learning about, fucking curves in a way that they hadn't understood before about like charting um different probabilities different outcomes like flatten the curve became like a, a household expression like that's wild to me um so in terms of like really concrete advice it would be like that when you feel overwhelmed by the data or you feel like you're not sure you know there's like this almost emotional reaction of like i don't get it I'm just like not going to engage is to be patient with yourself and give yourself time to sit with the information mm. and then just start to methodically go through questions. So like who collected this? 
what motivations might they have to either tell me the truth or not tell me the truth? When was this collected? How important is it that this data set is up to date? And I also think it's really legitimate before you like accept something to ask whether or not you're represented in it. Like, I don't know if I would want a vaccine that had never ever been tested on women. Just like, I don't know if I want to, uh, I mean, I was just about to say, I don't know if I want to watch a TV show that, has, that includes no Arab characters, but let's face it, that has been like every TV show that I've ever, <laughs> I've ever consumed. So that's a stupid, um, a stupid example. But yeah, it's to ask yourself whether or not you're, whether or not you're represented in it. And if you're not, is there, is there a data set that you can find that better, that, that does include you? You know, I think about this all the time for like polling. Like I just think surveys and polling is so deeply flawed because the people that they speak to are not a nationally representative sample and it just doesn't really tell you very much. Mm. And why is that with polling? Because um, it's inherently a flawed endeavour, I would say, to attempt to capture the beliefs and opinions of a of a country of over 330 million people it's just flawed let alone if you're trying to do it using a thousand people how on earth can a thousand people possibly reflect 330 million i've always thought about that like is a thousand people the basis of is that how we draw conclusions it's roughly a thousand it's roughly a thousand yeah and many many surveys and polls will have far less than that they might have a couple hundred like it's just it's absolutely ludicrous there was a lot of coverage i remember i want to say it was in 2016 about how it became exposed that like one black man was was participating in multiple surveys for these opinion polls because it's also like an interesting kind of demographic the kind of people that would even have the time and be willing to respond to these surveys. They're not particularly well paid. Anyway, this one black guy was responding to all of these surveys and somehow he became representative of like 45% of black voters in America just because he was so consistently responding to these, these surveys where, yeah, like one, one voice gets magnified in these really dangerous ways to represent all of these different demographic groups. Is there a way to what is the utopia of polling look like oh that's such a good question oh it's so interesting i don't know i don't know if i'm actually really interested in data sets about what people believe i feel like the whole the whole undertaking is flawed i'm interested in data sets on how people behave let me give you a really weird example right Okay, Cupid's founder, this guy called Christian Rudder, loves data, maybe not surprising. And he used to write this blog about all of the data behind Okay, Cupid. When you sign up to Okay, Cupid, you can ask people, what are your sexual preferences? And in some ways, that's weirdly, what do you believe? I know it sounds like tenuous, but stick with me for a second, right? So people sign up and you can give your age range. And most people say, I'm willing to date like from a relatively young age to a pretty old age, and I'm open to people of any race. When you look at people's actual behavior, not their stated preferences, you find that consistently people swipe yes to people who are in the same racial or ethnic group as them. They don't, they're not as inclined to date outside of their racial and ethnic groups, but with, with like a little bit of flexibility, you know. And so the two groups that consistently get the least likes on Tinder, are black women and Asian men. 
I don't care about the, the survey data on, oh, would you date a black woman or an Asian guy or whatever? Like, what I'm interested in is people's actual behaviour. Like, what does that say about beauty standards, about racism in the US? You know, that these two groups are consistently being told, no, you're not attractive. Equally with age, equally with age, the men say, oh, like, I'm willing to date women of my own age. And they're all saying yes to 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 girls and women who are who are 10, 15 years younger than them. But the women's behaviour doesn't elicit, are generally, like, more in line with their own age groups. That, to me, says, again, so much about, like, the way that women are commodified and viewed as having this shelf life and beauty standards. It reveals so much more than just asking people who would you date. Maybe we just need mm. to, like, forget about asking people about their opinions. Unless it's on a one... Like, I care about your opinion, Noor. I want to understand your opinion. But the idea of ever attempting to understand the opinions of all Muslim women in America, like, what does that even mean? What does it mean? It really is about how people behave. That's so... Like, even if, let's say, you want to understand muslim beliefs towards the vaccine right because it's essential for public policy and how we're going to roll this out right understanding which groups even then if you take a government form and go knocking on people's doors certain groups might just feel more intimidated by those government employees and be more likely to just say do you know what i mean like people don't necessarily say the fucking truth in these scenarios what i'm more yeah, interested yeah. in is once you start to roll out the vaccine, now let's drill into which communities are taking this and which communities aren't and how can we adjust our uptake. Forget about doing surveys ahead of time. I don't know. I don't know. Wait. I I wonder if it's... I don't know why I'm seeing the word like laziness or tired in my head because maybe tracking people's behavior seems a lot more difficult than just asking mm. people what they think and then trusting it mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah i think it can be much much harder and i also think there's some things that it's like yeah it's harder to quantify in terms of behavior like that's a really rare example of okay cupid right like before that existed how would you measure people's like sexual behaviors and stuff you know like off of these apps because because you're asking you're asking now for information after the fact instead of when they sign up and you have the opportunity like people don't just tell the truth more people yeah yeah but do they people even know that they don't tell the truth I think it's complicated. That's that's absolutely right what you're saying. Like sometimes people know that they that they're not telling the truth and sometimes people like to think of themselves as super super open-minded. And then there's all of this internal dialogue as they're looking at faces online about yeah. Mm. What are you the most excited about when it comes to how we are consuming data and research today? Mm because I I really like I never thought about when you said you know us using the term flatten the curve is such a big deal you're right I never yeah. that's not something I, that I would have been aware of and so mm -hmm. that I think is a pivotal point in the shift of how we consume data so what now what do you see now 
I think that I really enjoy people's skepticism. And I think that that creates really interesting opportunities for good storytelling and good journalism, right? Like for me, you know, it was, I'm not going to refer to it just in case you end up cutting it, but I just find methodology so interesting. And like, for me, there's a really exciting opportunity now to not just deliver charts and information to people, but to talk people through exactly how I got there. Like, this is the government data set that I was looking at. These are the questions that I asked. At first I found this, and then I found this other thing, and then I found this other thing. Like, I, I, sometimes I, I give this example as a way of showing people how human data sets are, right? And it's, and it's just, again, a story of methodology. So years ago, I was working for a terrible blog, um, and it was National Sandwich Day. And so I was gonna write an article, like a cutesy kind of like, America's most common sandwich fillings. And I found this incredible data set. I think it was published by the Food and Drug Administration, where for two days, they ask thousands of Americans to keep a meticulous food diary. Absolutely everything that passes your lips has to be recorded. The time of day, the ingredients, everything. And so I like downloaded this enormous data set that like my computer basically couldn't cope with it. It was so enormous. And I start reading across like just one single row of data. And it's always really hard, right? Because when you open up these huge data sets, you almost have to like translate and decipher them. At the top of each column, it will say X, Y, and then you have to go to a code book and figure out what does X, Y mean? Okay, X, Y means the time of day. I'm reading across and I'm deciphering everything. And I'm like, okay, this guy had a glass of milk at 2 p.m. and then two slices of white bread with a slice of cheese in between at 7 p.m. That was it. Following day, glass of milk, cheese sandwich. Exact same deal. And then you start to like read across, okay, race and ethnicity, Hispanic, um, immigrant status, I think it was an immigrant guy, age, 72, marital status, widowed. And you're just like, oh, like, I, I don't see you, I don't know who you are, but like, it's so much more human than a string of numbers. And it just comes to life when you start to read it across. And that to me is kind of like, to answer your question, that to me is like the dream world of data, of like showing people how, mm. it, it, like there's just this richness of storytelling that you can get from a data set when it's done right. That's incredible, that's fascinating. I think that that just changed my perspective a little bit too, because I, I love obviously just asking questions curiously and, and having that human connection of a story, but I suppose I wouldn't typically ask someone about their behavior in that way. Mm. And that in itself is a story. Like that is a very telling. And hey, maybe we're a part of it is proje projecting. Like maybe he was just eating that cheese sandwich because he I didn't know. have time to go to I the know. grocery store and stuff. Yeah. And, and yet, regardless of that, when you when you read that line you are seeing more of a person than a number. And yeah. that maybe is more important. Yeah. And like you said, all it kind of does is equips you with a new set of questions. So it's kind of like mm. my new set of questions is like, are you doing okay? Like, you know, I, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe he's fine. But like, are you doing okay? It almost made me want to like understand like the mental health of widowers or like, 
I don't know. Like it just it just gives ways to a whole That's new incredible. set of questions. Yeah. That's incredible because it just leads you to more stories. Yeah. More, and, and to go back to what I was saying in the beginning, like it reminds you that there is no period at the end, that there is always no, a question never. mark, that there's always more questions and that we don't need to be looking for periods. No, that's mm. not, life isn't that. Yeah, I mean, to go back right to the start, this idea of categories, right? Like even Arab isn't a period, right? Like it's the it's yeah. opening one of the Russian dolls and then within it is so much more. Um, And even that is like a conversation to be starting of like, we're like just evolving those categories on a form, but also in conversations. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I have some not so rapid, rapid fire questions for you. I'm ready. I'm ready. What is your favorite recent data fact? Oh. Or a recent study that you've read? It's not favorite. I'm literally thinking of all of my tabs that are open right now. I can like literally talk you and through favorite some of my tabs. And favorite is simply like I mean, the yeah. one that's on your mind these days. Um... I don't know if this is favorite, but I keep on trying to create um, visualizations about the changes in animal ownership during the pandemic. Like, I think that would really resonate with people and talking about how the animal population in shelters has fluctuated over time. Like, at one point, I was thinking about getting an animal, which is not like me. Like, I don't, whatever, I don't want to say it because I would literally be cancelled if I say that I don't really vibe with dogs, but... I was contemplating it and literally I called up this shelter and the woman was just like I'll call back in a few months everyone that's adopted all of these animals they'll be ditching them on us as soon as they go back into the office and I was like whoa that's fucked up but anyway it's like these small anecdotal experiences that feel like they are happening all around us like everyone is having new relationships with pets and this is something we haven't touched on but like it's really relevant. Data is so rarely timely. Like the data on pet ownership, for example, like the most recent stuff I could find last time I looked was like two years old. So it's like, how can we, yeah, I'm not really capturing the pandemic just yet. I might have to be patient on that one. But I'm thinking about pets. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm definitely one of those people. I mean, I didn't give back my pets, but I definitely got my first What did you get? The pandemic. We got two kittens. Um from the Brooklyn Cat Cafe, which is like this nonprofit that rescues cats. And yeah, so we have two cats. What are their names? Well, when I got them, there was two sisters and then one of them passed away from like the cat version of coronavirus, which was really devastating. (gasps) Um, And their names were, yeah, it was not good. Um, That was not good. It, their names were Pinza and Piaf after Edith Piaf. And then Piaf is the one who passed away. And we just got another oh. one last week, finally. Like, I was like, okay, I guess it's time. And um, we call her Mayday. From, from a Handmaid's No, Tale. not from Handmaid's Tale. Okay, okay. From, oh my, she, Thank just, God. Actually, she just, she literally just got on my lap. It was from a band that I loved. Oh um, my god, she's so cute. She's and she's so messy. So I'm like, yeah, 
just chaos. Love it. Love it. Yeah. What is a topic on your am I normal mood board mm. or inspo list uh, or whatever you do that you're excited about? So I'm really excited about the last episode. The last episode is all about cousin marriage and the racist stigma in the US to do with cousin marriage and how it is not borne out in data. I can't. Oh my gosh, you have the most incredible episodes. I'm so excited. I am thrilled for that one. Okay, where is your, what is your go-to place that you go to in London to feel like you're in New York? I have no such go-to place. I literally do nothing. I am a hermit. Like, I don't leave the house. And that's not an exaggeration. I do nothing. And there wouldn't be anywhere here that would remind me of the joys of New York because this is a... Is there a place city. in New York that you would go to to feel like London? When I was in New York, I had no desire to feel like I was in London. I was very happy to be in New York. <laughs> what do you miss the most? Oh, I miss everything. I mean, I guess I just mostly miss people. I mostly miss people. But I also miss really good food. Come on, New mm. York food. It's amazing. Mm. Yes, that's true. A song you listen to for joy. Mariah Carey's always quite good. Nelly. A little bit of Nelly. <laughs> Country grammar. Amazing. Amazing. Is that Does that give you joy when you listen to it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, your favorite thing that, like, favorite Iraqi dish that your mom makes? Oh, Klaicha. She makes these cookies that are very Iraqi. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And finally, Mona, what do you know for sure? I know for sure that I don't have all the answers. And I think that humility is a good starting point for data journalism. Mm. Yeah, I know for sure what I don't that I don't know a lot of things. That's a bit of a cop out. That's a bit crap. Uh, no, I mean, I, that's a really. It, I feel like that's such a data journalist thing for you to say. The more that you learn, the less that like the more that you realize you actually don't know mm. anything. What's your answer to that question? What? That's not what we're supposed to do. What do I know? It's what for I'm sure? doing. It's hard. It's um, really hard. Yeah. I know that. What I think I know for sure is that all of the answers that we're looking for are inside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. That we don't have to always look outside of ourselves. And I know for sure that love. Like, I really, I mean, the Beatles say it and all that and everybody says like love is the answer and all of that and I think that in the last couple of years that has been the biggest breakthrough that I've had is like love is the answer love is an answer a really big one mm -hmm. that's what I know for sure today but it's always that's changing that's a bad thing to know yeah 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 yeah. And it's still hard because there's different kinds of love, right? And which love is which answer on which day might be a little bit hard. 
but yeah. It's well, you know what? I'll wait for that podcast episode from you, Mona. <laughs> How can we support really your work? You... Oh, no. Um, listen to the podcast if you can, if, you, if you'd like to. And leave a review. Um, and leave a review and maybe I've posted um, illustrations on Instagram if anyone would like to have a look at them. But also, actually, the most important thing you can do to support my work is that I can only come up with the questions that are like from me. I know that sounds so obvious, but if you have questions that come from your experiences that are so much broader and different than mine, like send me questions and I will try to find answers. That's my favorite thing to do. I love that. I, w- I might take you up on that. You should. You should. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mona. It was so amazing having you on and and just jamming. I feel like I have a lot to think about. Thanks. Well, me too. You left me with a lot to think about. I still, it's really bad when two journalists, I guess, get together because I just wanted to be the one asking you the questions. <laughs> it's more interesting to hear you speak than to hear myself speak, you know? I. Why do you think I do this? <laughs> same reason. Same, 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 same. For more Mona, you can listen to her podcast, Am I Normal, wherever you get your pods, and follow her on Instagram at Mona Shelleby. As always, at your service.